0: All right, well, welcome to all of you to part four of a series that I've been doing called Why We Do What We Do. We're on part four. Today I'm gonna talk about why do we worship? What do we do it for? You know, this has been kind of a fun series. We've been I thought when this series started I would just be several isolated, independent messages that I would talk about things that we do in church. And sometimes we get so used to doing things, we forget why. So we opened up the series and I talked about baptism. Why do we do that? And then the next message I talked about, why do we do communion? And last week we talked about, why do we deny ourselves and carry our cross? Now, when I started this series, I thought it's kind of interesting. I thought we would have independent messages that didn't really relate to each other. Kind of a kind of a series of, hey, you know, just informative stuff. But as I look back, and this usually happens in every series that I do, after about the second and third message, I start to see a specific pattern that the Lord is leading in. Usually what happens, I start looking at the different verses that I used in each of the messages, and I start lining them up with each other, and I start to see a whole different message or a whole different pattern emerge in the series. And that's kind of fun and exciting, because actually you're coming here not to just hear what I have to say, but to really hear what the Holy Spirit's speaking And so really over the last week, I kind of realized that this message isn't so much of a series on just why do we do what we do, but this message is really turning into a message on spiritual warfare. It's really turning into a message on how to be strong in the Lord, or I think another way to say it is how to stand against the schemes of the enemy. How to stand against the plans that the enemy has in your life. And so this isn't so much of a message on actively fighting against the evil one. That is appropriate at times. But I'm kind of sensing in this series, God is just showing us what he has already done for us to be victorious in the battle. And so this is a series more about the first step in spiritual warfare, which is about how to really get filled with the presence and the power of Jesus in your life. And I looked over these messages, and we looked over baptism, communion, deny yourself. It's all about how we get filled more with the presence of a Jesus in our life so we can stand against any scheme that the evil one would have to come against us. I love the book of Ephesians. I think it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And one of the reasons I like it is because it's a book with just six chapters. It's a pretty good summary of the New Testament. Some of you, if the Bible, you're like, I a hard time figuring it out, read the book of Ephesians several times. You'll kind of get on, you, the kind of really what the whole New Testament's all about. It's a book that's divided. The first three chapters are great because it talks all about who God is and who we are. And then when you go to the last part of the book, four, five, and six, it's all about how the message of Christ will impact our life and influence our lives. So it's a great book to really understand just kind of the basics of Christianity. And all through Ephesians, you see that Paul is referring to the struggle in a believer's life. He's talking about the struggle that we have with, um, that we have, In our lives, and then in the last chapter of Ephesians, in chapter 6, he starts talking about the spiritual battle. He's talking about this unseen battle that we are in. And it sounds a little unusual if you're not familiar with that book. But it really shouldn't be that strange to us because Jesus spent his ministry all through the gospel encountering resistance or encountering anything demonic that was resisting what he was trying to do. And all through Jesus' message, even when Jesus talked about what his his mission was, he said it was to set the captives free. So if Jesus is going to set the captives free, that means somebody has taken his people into captivity, and that is Satan, and that's who Paul is talking about when Paul opens us up to this whole idea of this invisible war that's going on around us. In Ephesians 6, verse 10, verse 13, it says, finally... At the end of the book of Ephesians, at the end where Paul explains what Jesus has done for us, who we are, and what our response is, he says, okay, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand firm, remember that. We'll get back there. I really wasn't going to tell this story, but then I looked, and my wife put this in social media. So now I'm stuck. If you didn't see our social media, she said, What is a bear and a llama? Oh, man, I'm going to get. Anyway, and plaid boxers. So, about 19 years ago, Becky and I were living in Colorado Springs, and our oldest son, Nick, who's not here with us in the service today, he was probably about a year old. They're we living in Colorado Springs on eight acres of property, and we had seven llamas. We shared this eight acres with Becky's parents. They had a house on the land, we had a house on the land, and we had seven llamas together. and a little one-year-old boy. And normally what my routine was, I would get up in the morning and on my way to work, I'd be pulling out of the driveway and I would stop and feed the llamas. I'd go to their barn, give them some grain and a little hay. So every morning they're waiting for me. And so one morning I get up and I'm driving through the driveway and I notice none of the llamas are at the barn. They're all in the back corner of our pasture. I thought, well, that's strange. What are they all doing over there? And then I noticed one of the llamas wasn't with them. That was buckshot. I'm like, where's Buckshot? So I go walking behind our barn in the back, and there's Buckshot laying on the ground. Somebody had killed Buckshot. It looked like some kind of animal. So I went in the house, and I do whatever I do whenever there's a crisis. I'm like, Becky, what do we do? (laughs) If you ever have crisis in your life, I may be the pastor, but she is the voice of reason in crisis. So Becky, what do we do? So Becky, the smart one, she calls the Department of Natural Resources and they come over and they come investigate the crime scene on our property and they determine that buckshot was killed by a bear. And it's very unusual that a bear would kill a llama because bears don't eat meat. They don't. And so the question is, why would this bear kill a llama? And so the concern was, is that we sort of had a very uh, crazy bear loose in our area that was just randomly attacking llamas and so the big concern was that he would probably want to maybe go after one of us and so you know heads up be very cautious so the department of natural resources gave us all the instructions what to do and then also when he called the dnr it also triggers the local media and so then the local media is coming out because there is a bear in this uh, section of colorado springs And then the uh, media advertises everywhere. So then the next thing you know, you have every redneck in Colorado coming over to your house, knocking on the door, offering to shoot your bear. (laughs) And then you have, on the opposite side, you have all the tree huggers in Colorado coming over to your house to offer to rehabilitate your bear. (laughs) That they can rescue this bear and they can help this bear have a better life because they know what the future is for a bear that attacks llamas so we have all this going on in our house and kind of um, kind of interesting and so actually that night I was in the backyard with Becky and Nick playing on Nick's jungle gym and it was about five o'clock and we were going back to the house and literally I was walk opening the door to the house and there comes that 400 pound bear straight at us so we did stay in the house the rest of that night so then, then he just scurried off, and we really couldn't keep track of where he was. So that night, we all went to bed, and, and about 3 in the morning, I hear this BAM. And I look out our bedroom window, and I can see that 400-pound brown bear on his back legs, arms in the air. He had knocked down our big fence to get into our barn. And there he's knocking that down, and I see these six little llamas just bolting for the farthest corner that they could get to. So me being... The warrior that I am. I run out of our bedroom. We had a little French door off our bedroom. And I'm running to the barn as fast as I could. It's about 150 yards away. And I am bolting to that barn as fast as I can get. And I get halfway there and I stop. Because I realize I have two major problems. Number one, I don't have a gun. And number two, I'm not wearing any clothes. All I have on is my plaid green boxers. So there's the end of the riddle of social media. So I'm halfway to the barn with no gun in my green plaid boxers thinking, this isn't really smart. And I'm also thinking back, this bear is going to mull me down. They're going to take me to the hospital. I'm going to go in the hospital on a stretcher and the nurse is going to be like, I remember those green plaid boxers because a year ago, you fell down the steps at your house and broke your leg and you ended up in that ambulance in the ER. So I am not going to go any more further against this bear. So I stop and I go in the house and I get my father-in-law and he comes out with his gun. But by that time, that bear had scurried away. As I reflect on this story, I think what I did Represents what a lot of us do in spiritual warfare, any encounter that we have with the evil one. We get all excited about what's going on, but we have no idea who our enemy is. We have no idea what our enemy can do, and we have no idea our ability or no idea what God can actually do for us. And so I want to talk today about the spiritual battle that we get in conflict with. I want to talk about what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 6 where he's talking about the spiritual battle that we're in. And I know all of you are looking at me like you better finish the story. Where is that wild bear? Well, it depends. Department of Natural Resources also told us be very careful what happens to that bear because you're either going to have some people very happy with what you did or you're going to have a bunch of people that are very disgusted with what you did. So all the people that are in for rehabilitating a bear... You, you have to leave while I finish the story. <laughs> that bear did not, he got rehabilitated. <laughs> it's just in a different way that some people would like. But anyway, the DNR does give you special permission to uh, extinguish a bear on your property that has proven to have a compromised mental capacity. So we did have a cage out to try to catch him, and if he would have went in there, he would have been brought back to the mountains, but he chose a different path to terminate his life with the help of our neighbor. I didn't do it. Our neighbor did it. So that bear's gone. So anyway, back to my story about Ephesians 6 and why you should not chase after a bear in your underwear. So Paul was generous in Ephesians 6, at the end of Ephesians 6, to tell us how we are going to fight against an enemy. And he talks about this whole concept of putting on the armor of God. He's using the analogy what a Roman soldier would wear into battle, that they were a helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, face, sword of the spirit. He's talking about all these things that you put on so you can stand against an enemy and I was reading through that list, and I thought, you know, it's interesting the provision that God gives to us, but what do you have to put on underneath your armor? Because you would put on that, all that clunky armor of God, that's going to hurt when it rubs directly against your skin. That's not going to feel that good to have that on there. So I did a little Googling, and I figured out what did a Roman soldier wear underneath their armor? And it said that the Roman soldiers would wear a long white tunic underneath their armor. And all through Scripture, a white tunic is representative of truth and righteousness. See, before we can put on the armor of God, we need to know the truth of who God is and who he created us to be. And we need to understand the righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ that because of Christ's righteousness working in our life, we can stand against the enemy. And then we can put that armor on. And I thought it's interesting because when you look at the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, 2, and 3 is all about the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of who we are. And then when you go on 4, 5, and 6, it's all about what he's going to do in our life. And I think when you look at Ephesians 6, it is set up in such a way that before we can enter into a battle, we need to know who we are and who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So what does all this have to do with worship? What does any of this have to do with singing? I want to go to read Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 starts out by saying, okay, now this is what you need to do. God has done a lot of things for you. Jesus has done a lot of things for you. Now this is your part. And so Ephesians 5, Paul starts out by saying, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality impurity or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk and coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey Him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you "'produces only what is good and right and true. "'Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. "'Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. "'Instead, expose them. "'It is shameful even to talk about the things "'that ungodly people do in secret, "'but their evil intentions will be exposed "'when the light shines on them, "'for the light makes everything visible.'" This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtless, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs among yourself and making music to the Lord in your heart and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Father, I just pray that you'd be with us now, Lord, as we try to understand what is written in Ephesians 5 and that you'd speak to each of us. Lord, that you'd use my words to give you glory and to explain what is written. In Jesus' name, amen. So, there you go. That's how you live the Christian life. You just be filled with the Holy Spirit. Sounds pretty easy. Just be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are probably wondering, wait a minute, what's this whole be filled with the Holy Spirit thing? I thought when I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior that I was filled filled with the Holy Spirit. So why are you bringing up another filling of the Holy Spirit? That's a very good question because it does sound like there might be two different things going on. So first of all, when you do get saved, when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you do get filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in your life and takes residence in your life. But then the Bible also talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Ephesians 5, when it's talking about be filled, it literally means to be filled over and over again or continually. That you are constantly be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the best illustrations that my wife brought up is when you get saved, when you have Jesus come into your life and you get the Holy Spirit, it's like getting a glass of water. The Holy Spirit comes into your life like a glass filled with water. You get it free. There's nothing you did to earn it, deserve it, or merit it. It's freely given to you. But then you start drinking of that water and it starts going down. So you need your water cup to be filled over and over again. So how does that happen? How do you get more Holy Spirit to fill that container in your life? Well, if you're in a restaurant, sometimes your waiter or waitress just automatically gives you some water. And sometimes the Lord will do that in our life. He will just fill you up. When He calls for you to do certain things in your life, He has an assignment for you to do, you'll get some more filling of the Holy Spirit to do what He's called you to do. There's times that we come before God and we just ask that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you'd give us more of who you are. But then there's also times where your obedience is linked to the amount of the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. That your obedience, your following God is going to determine the amount of the Holy Spirit that you have working in your life and that's why one of the reasons we focused on baptism and communion and denying yourself is because these activities in your life will determine how much of the Holy Spirit is at work in your life so you're wondering what does that look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit well Paul did a nice thing for us what he said was don't be drunk with wine instead be filled with the Holy Spirit so Paul is saying okay I got a lot of partiers in my audience, a lot of people who probably used to partake of a lot of alcohol, so hey, maybe this will help you understand. See, when you drink too much wine, what happens to you is that wine will start affecting every single area of your life. It will affect how you think. It will affect how you talk. It will affect your emotions. It will affect your speech. It's going to impact every single part of your life. And Paul's saying that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. The Holy Spirit wants to have influence over every single area of your life, how you talk, how you think, how you act, how you behave, what your desires are, what motivates you. And that's what Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit has come to do in your life. It wants to determine how you live. It wants to determine how you act. It wants to determine what makes you excited. So you hear a lot of people say that were former drinkers or maybe had some addiction problems. You know, when I would drink or when I would do drugs, I felt like I was coming alive, that I could finally be who I truly was once all my inhibitions were taken away. And they liked that feeling of being drunk or being high because they felt like that's who they were. And see, that's what God is saying to you. He's saying if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to start feeling like who you were created to be. You're going to start losing Things that might scare you or might make you intimidated, but now you have so much of the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life, you're like, yeah, this is what I was called to do. This is what I was created to do. This is what I was created to be. And then you get real radical, like our Bridge Street students, and then you give two months of your life and you go to, where'd they go again? India and Guatemala. I got so excited I forgot. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in your life. You start thinking outside of what you normally would do. And you start thinking about other people and other people groups and other people that are hurt and in trouble. And that's what you want to do. You're motivated to do what God has called us to do in His Word. I love in the book of Acts, and it talks about Peter and John and how full they were of the Holy Spirit. You remember when Jesus was crucified the night before, Peter was so intimidated that three times he denied who Christ was. And then suddenly you get to the book of Acts, and Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 13, it says this amazing verse that says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, that's what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You get this new boldness. And you get this new confidence that comes over you. And people around you would be like, wow, I never expected that much from that person. I never really thought they were that smart. Or they had much ability, but they're like, he'd been with Jesus. It's obvious what happens in your life when you're with Jesus. You get a new confidence because you're doing what you're created to do. You get a new boldness because that's what you're created to do. See, so often in our American culture, we value education so much. And I value education. My kids go to school. But sometimes we think education is only what's going to prepare you. And I love this verse. It's because Peter and John, they recognize that they have been with Jesus. And that's part of worship. Part of worship is you spend your time with Jesus, And you become influenced by Jesus. You become affected by Jesus in every area of your life. And that's why we come to church and why we sing. That's why we spend time in church singing. Not because we need a little filler. Not because church has to be an hour and 15 minutes, so we better figure out something to do because we don't want to listen to Jack for an hour and 15. But we do worship because it helps us to spend time with Jesus. It helps us to put Jesus first in our life. See, we have this problem in our culture and in our society of sometimes we look like to put other things ahead of Jesus. We know Jesus is supposed to be first in our life, but it's easy to put other things first. And that's why we come and worship, because it helps get anything that's first in our life that shouldn't be first and gets them in the back of the line. I love Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit God's. It's a great book, and in his book, he says this quote, which I love. He says, the human heart is an idol factory. It takes good things like successful careers, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. That's kind of what we do in our life. God gives us things in our life to enjoy. Like he said, like family, like careers. But what we do is we kind of like to put them first before God. We get a good job and we're grateful to God that he, that he gives that to us. But then we start working more than we should work and it suddenly replaces God in our life. Or we, God gives us a wonderful family and we start to put our family before God. Or God gives us a good sports ability and instead of surrendering that to God, we put sports first in our life. That one was for you, Brody. (laughs) Though I shouldn't pick on him, he's a little sad. He had a rough night last night. But we do that in our lives. There's always a competition in our life. Who is going to be first? See, God just wants Jesus in our life to always be first. But we have an enemy who's always trying to deceive us that always thinks, no, put this first in your life. And over and over again, there's a battle in our life. There's a battle in our life over who is going to be first. And that's one of the reasons that we come to church is why we sing or why we play music in our car, why we engage in music. In fact, in the Bible, there's at least five commands that the Lord gives to us about worshiping. I want to quick read through those five because I think it's very important that we understand these five commands. I know. Number one is Five commands. The five commands of worship, number one, is come into his presence with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Number two, be filled with the Spirit, singing and making melody in your heart. The third one from Psalm 16 is, come into his presence, fullness of joy. And Psalm 47 is, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. And, find, and then we have Psalm 35, may those who delight in salvation shout for joy. And finally, in 1 Timothy 2.8, it says, I command men everywhere to lift up holy hands. So we have these instructions from God how to worship him. And it's really active participation. It's really not just kind of sit back and watch. But it's actually about engaging in worship. And I believe the reason God wants us to engage so much in worship is because it helps determine what is going to be first in our life. There are times that we participate in worship in church that maybe you really don't like the song that much. Maybe you don't like the style. Maybe you don't even know the song. But all through these commands, it says you participate in worship. Sometimes one of the best things to do is express worship through your body language. Raising up hands right there in 1 Timothy. Sometimes you need to put up your hands as a sign of surrender or a sign that you're reaching out to God. See, there's another reason that we, our body posture matters so much in worship. There's this term called psychosomatic unity. Psychosomatic unity is a term that means our posture can affect our emotions and our attitude. It's a psychological term that they use that your body posture can actually determine what you're feeling and what you're thinking. For example, if you're having a hard time praying and focusing, then get on your knees. You will notice a whole different attitude come over you if you are on your knees praying. There's a whole no different level of submission that you do when you're on your knees praying. And imagine if somebody asked you, Brody gave me this little illustration, imagine if somebody was going to give you money. I said, I'm going to give you money. Guys, put out your hand. Everybody try it. Put your hand out. You're all like, yeah, I'm going to receive that. That's a good feeling. Turn your hand that way. Notice the difference how you feel when you just go from being able to receive to turn it to kind of rejecting it? Did you feel that? Good for you. You get extra credit. Anybody else? Good, Lori. Phew, I got two. All right, now I'm not going to be insecure. But we do that in our life. Sometimes our very own body language will influence what goes on in our emotions. And so sometimes when we participate in worship, that's why we do shout or why we do kneel or why we do stand or why we raise our hand in submission or we raise our hand into reaching out or we put our hands like this to receive or, Sam, we wave a flag, which is a posture of victory. That we have victory in our life. Karen, go back in the slides. We'll go back to Tim Keller when he talks about in our lives that sometimes when he said that our hearts are an idle factory, sometimes we don't even know that we have replaced things in our life, that we have taken Jesus off the throne of our life and we put something up there like maybe sports or our career or our job or our 401k account. So Tim Keller in Counterfeits Gods, he gives us a little help to understand what an idol is. An idol is anything that we make more important than God. Number two is an idol is anything that absorbs our hearts and minds more than God. An idol is anything we seek to give us what only God can give. And finally, an idol is anything so central and essential to life that if we lose it, life no longer feels worth living. That's how we know that we have idols in our life. See, God has created each of us with the ability to worship. But he's also given us each of us the ability to desire something. And whatever you desire is going to be first place in your life. And that's going to be what you worship. Whatever you desire will eventually become something that you worship. Now, there's nothing wrong with having cars and houses and kids, but we have to remember that Jesus is always first, that we can't look to anything else to give us what only Jesus can give us, peace and security and acceptance and confidence. Those are only reserved for Jesus to give to us. I want to finish talking about King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles. I love the story about King Jehoshaphat because the, the chapter opens where he had a big problem. He was king over the nation of Judah. And suddenly Jehoshaphat heard that all of his enemies had assembled together with a plan to defeat him. They were going to come against Judah and rip that nation apart because the enemies, what they wanted, they wanted the possessions of that nation. They wanted to take from that nation what God had given to them. And that's what the enemy does in each of our lives. He wants to take the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God has given to us. Or take our family or take our loved ones. He wants to take them for his own. And so this Jehoshaphat story is a picture of kind of a a, a natural battle, but something that represents something that spiritually happens. So Jehoshaphat hears this news And in the second or the third verse, it says Jehoshaphat became very upset. He was very anxious for what the enemy planned to do. So the text tells us that the first thing that he did is he went to God and he prayed. And the second thing he did was he called to fast. He told people it's now time to fast. Fasting is another way of saying denying yourself to determine what's first in your life. Sometimes that's the best thing to do when you understand that you have an enemy coming against you, you have to understand there's a problem in your life. One of the first things to do is determine what is first place in your life, because that's one of the first things that God wants to do is make sure he's first in your life and he's the one that's going to lead you through battle. And so the next thing we do is we hear Jehoshaphat praying, and it's a powerful prayer, <clears throat> and I love how he starts to pray it in verse five or verse six. He says, Oh, Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. See, the first thing Jehoshaphat did was he remembered who is God. That's the place we start of any battle in our life is who is God. And Jehoshaphat's reminding himself who God is. And it says, Oh God, <clears throat> did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your descendants Israel arrived? He's remembering what God had done for them in the past. You remember that spring came again last year. Sometimes to get through a war as you remember what God did in the past and it gives you strength to go in the future. And he says, And did not you give this land forever to your descendants of your friend Abraham? He reminded the Lord of his promise. He said, God, you promised that this was ours. So don't let the enemy take it away from us. And so we see that picture that Jehoshaphat goes before the Lord in an attitude of submission. And then the fourth thing it does, it says that Jehoshaphat went and asked other people for their advice. He got into community. He got into people that he knew, that he loved, and he trusted. He said, hey, this is going on, what do you think? And one of the friends of Jehoshaphat came to him and he said, the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God came on his friend and his friend said to him, this is what the Lord says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army for the battle is not yours but God's. Who said that to Jehoshaphat? His friends did. See, God puts us in community for friends to speak life into us for friends to prophetically speak into our life what God is saying to us. We need community at times to get through the struggles in our life. See, the enemy wants to take us when we're having a struggle and put us in isolation. But look what happened to Jehoshaphat. His friend had the word from God for his life. And so what did Jehoshaphat do? He heard what his friend said. He heard what his friend said. To stand still and watch the Lord's victory. The same thing the Apostle Paul said put on the armor of God and stand still. You be prepared for the battle, but the battle is the Lord's. The Lord's the one who's going to fight it. You just got to prepare for it. And so the next verse it tells us, it ends in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 21 to 22. It says, Jehoshaphat, after consulting with the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. At that very moment, they began to sing and give praise. The Lord caused the army of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting amongst themselves. These 3 enemies that had come against Jehoshaphat were destroyed when Jehoshaphat put singing first. He said that's how we're going to find our freedom. We're just going to worship the Lord. Doesn't sound probably like the best war strategy. You put your choir first? But it worked. Maybe it doesn't start sound the smartest, but it worked. You just praise your way through any situation that you get to in your life. That is the battle, how the victory is won. It's won on the keyboard.